Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that. And then we devise a three-year plan potential for our second meeting. Then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Thank you for joining me today on Icons of DC Area Real Estate. This is episode 45. My guest today is Monty Hoffman. Monty Hoffman is most well known for developing the wharf, the largest mixed-use development in Washington, DC history on the Southwest waterfront. He did that in, in joint venture with Madison Marquette and completed phase one in 2017 and is about to complete phase two in 2022. And when it's completed, it'll be well over 2 million square feet of just about every use you can think of on a waterfront, including a marina and a theater and retail and office and residential dwellings, entertainment venues, etc. So it's, it's quite an exciting project. His career leading up to that is very interesting as he comes from a rather blue-collar background in Western Pennsylvania. Dad was a bricklayer and then came at the industry through engineering and learning the business on the cost side, construction, how to get the property built, how to construct it, how to figure out systems, et cetera. And then he learned the economics later on in his career as he started buying and selling and selling condominium units. And so he talks about how that all evolved. It's, it's an interesting story. And the threads he has with his relationships, et cetera, are quite interesting. And some of his challenges were very interesting with regard, particularly on the war of construction. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Monty Hoffman. Thank you. Welcome, Monty, to Icons of DCR Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Thank you. So, Monty, could you describe your role at Hoffman and your focus day-to-day? Well, I'm chairman, 
And I'm not on the front line so much. I've tried to work the strategy of the company, where we're going, uh, a lot of deal making. And occasionally I come to the front line when I feel like I can help. Do a lot of mentoring, coaching, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Strategy? Things like that? Yeah. Well, with strategy, as you well know, we're, we're in an evolving environment right now. And, you know, what's, what's, the next, uh, what's the next niche, next big thing? So I spent a lot of time on trends mm-hmm. uh, where I, I, I think business is going and where people are going and then figuring out how we can apply our resources uh, toward that. So ever, really ever tinkering and changing the business model. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's roll back the playback machine here and, and uh, tell us a little bit about your origins, your youth and parental influences. I think one of the biggest influences was that I come from a very big extended family. Uh, my mom and dad collectively had, I think, 15 brothers and sisters. So that meant 30 aunts and uncles. Wow. And they, they never divorced, you know, so none of those families, you know, fell apart. So it was all one big extended family. And each of those families had maybe three to six kids. So that means about 60 cousins. And, you know, then there's second cousins and great So where was uncles. this? It was in actually two areas. One okay. is the Detroit area really? and the other in uh, Western Pennsylvania. And it really, it, the roots are deeper in Western Pennsylvania. They probably go back five or six generations. Wow. But in the uh, 50s, you know, like many people, you know, it's all working class family. They, sure. they went to Detroit. Uh-huh. And I would say you know, Detroit back then was kind of, you know, for working class was like maybe Silicon Valley as to the educated today. You know, so it was That's a where I grew big, up. big migration going in Detroit. I grew up area. in the Detroit area. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it was Taylor to be specific. Taylor, Michigan. Yeah. Sure. And I was, I was born in Dearborn. Uh-huh. So... It was uh, it was a terrific childhood with you know lots of cousins and support. Did you go to high school there. I went to uh, all the way to Truman, which would have been ninth grade mm-hmm. uh, there. At fourteen, we moved to Pennsylvania. Okay, so I, I got a great taste of the city life and a great taste of country. You know, mm-hmm. complete opposites. Did your dad so, work for Ford Motor or another auto? Uh, no, my dad was a bricklayer. Oh, he and, was. Uh, okay. He was a bricklayer, and uh, he he was very you know. He wasn't a businessman, but he was a force. He was a determined guy. And so, you know, he raised through the ranks and he was a, you know, became a superintendent. He ran large projects in Detroit area and, and you know, did well for our family. And, mm-hmm. and then when I was in ninth grade, he decided to move to Pennsylvania and he started his own company there. Really? Yeah. So, but it was, it was a great childhood. He, he would bring home, I remember when I was just seven or eight years old, he, he would bring home leftover materials from the job sites and, uh, I would build forts in the backyard wow. uh, and three-story forts and had all the materials for free, you know, and it was, it was terrific. You know, no, no permits, no zoning commission, <laughs> pure freedom, <laughs> pure freedom as, uh, as a kid. And it was a blast for me. So I learned a lot. I enjoyed that. And then he would also take me to his job sites, which was a blast for me when I was just a little kid. And I learned very quickly that, you know, he talked differently on a job site than he did at home. And uh, that was, uh, was a big awakening for me. And just to listen to the humor and the sort of smack, as you would call it, I was learning what was that, that these guys were saying yeah, to each other. Sure. They kind of saying mean things to each yeah. other, you know. But, yeah, but it was kidding. It was, it was kidding. And yeah. it, you could tell they really liked each other. It was a camaraderie. So I loved it. I loved the, I loved the environment. I loved the buildings and all that. So anyway, that was, uh, that was a great, uh, it was a great childhood. And 
Then once we moved to Pennsylvania and he started his own company, you know, it was actually more accessible because the projects were smaller, as you would in a rural area that he was. So, you know, I found myself at 14 and 15 years old, running a backhoe, laying brick, driving a dump truck on the roads when I was 15, you know, it was just rural roads, but it was, it was a great, great start, a great environment because it was accessible you know, at an early age. I could do those What things. part of Pennsylvania? Near Johnstown. Area. Johnstown. Yeah, okay, yeah. sure. It's kind of steel and coal into that area. So, no, it was, it was terrific. And do you have siblings? I, yeah, I have a huge extended family, but uh, only one sister. Great, great childhood. My mom, she, you know, she worked as an administrative clerk uh, for a trucking company. And mm-hmm. She did those things. And, of course, in the traditional home, she took care of everything around the home and you know, I, I still can smell linen pledge, you know, <laughs> we were the cleanest house on the block. So she made sure she took care of those responsibilities, took for that very seriously. But, you know, it was, it was a great working class environment. So well, your, your real estate roots started when you were very little. And yeah, I, I was, I was fortunate because by the time I was ready to go to college, why I already knew what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. So now for that, you know, I, I didn't go to an Ivy League or a big school. I went to a branch campus, actually, of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. And that was only primarily because I paid my way through college. And it was cheaper for me to do that. Mm-hmm. So went to engineering, went through the engineering program on that and worked my summers in construction with my dad. Except for one summer, I got the opportunity to work in a coal mine. And my dad really? couldn't pay me as much as the coal mine, so I had to do that. So I joined the United Miners Worker Workers Union for that year, and I worked three miles under, underground. And that taught me a lot, too. It was an extraordinary experience for me. Wow. Yeah. So Was that one of those experiences, and I, my dad wanted to do that for me when I was younger, is to <laughs> do something that you knew that you probably wouldn't want to do in your life. Is that yeah? Is was that so, well, I I don't think it was a coincidence that I got straight A's after that. <laughs> <laughs> after that, after that experience, you know, I mean, you would go into a coal mine, and the only light you have is the one on your hard hat, and you know that beam of light is shining through darkness, and you can see all the coal particles dancing in the air, you know, in that beam of light. And those are the cold particles you are breathing. And, you know, it's one thing to do that over a summer. It's another thing to do that over 20 years. And so, you know, it gave me an appreciation for that type of blue collar work and what those guys do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, anyway, like I said, it was, it was a great experience. And I had the benefit of knowing it was just a summer that was not going to be my gig, right? <laughs> sure. So I made good money that year. And uh, and gained a lot of respect for people and learned a little bit too. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, so you got out of school and then, yeah. then what did you want to do? I still had to take a, a bit of a loan on, on the school. I couldn't pay for it all directly. So mm-hmm. I wanted to make as much money as I could, as quickly as I could. And I was fortunate. It was 1983. Economy wasn't that great, but I was fortunate to get a really good offer of a company called Pullman. And they built smokestacks. Uh, around the country back then, you know, for uh, large power plants. So I went from three miles underground to 600 feet in the air (laughs) on these smokestacks. And I was a project engineer on it. So I would take care of all the accounting on the job site Mm -hmm. and those sort of things. And it was very nomadic. Uh, And the the crews that work on these smokestacks were a wild bunch. 
And that was an experience too, to be able to, you know. These are factory smokestacks, like at steel plants and that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, these are concrete that concrete? go up, as I said, like 600 feet in air, which is, you know, a little bit taller than a Washington Monument as a reference. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're in big power plants power across plants. the country, okay. mostly in rural areas. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the first time I drove onto the job site and there was, I literally uh, stayed at a man camp is what they called it. Where, because there was no population near the, the you know, the, the, the industry. So that's where they kept the workers, and that's where I stayed. It's kind of like out of a Grapes of Wrath movie. It's just it was crazy, you know, for being a 21-year-old. It, it was uh, really awakening there. Anyway, I drove into the power plant for the first time, and the trailer I was supposed to report to had paper all over the windows on it, you know, to block anybody from seeing inside. Anyway, so I... I knocked on the door, uh, long story short, they were actually butchering an antelope inside oh the trailer. And it, because on the way there, somebody saw an antelope and everybody <laughs> was packing heat there back then. And so they took it down and, you know, they were, you know, processing meat. Well, that was my first job introduction after college. In any event, again, uh, a, a really great experience, learned a lot moved a couple of different places around the country. And then as soon as I paid my college loan off, I quit. Mm-hmm. I gave my two weeks notice and I, I said, thanks. And I moved. Was this what, a year or so? Couple About a year. Yeah. yeah. So uh-huh. in 1984, mm-hmm. actually, I moved to Washington, D.C., 400 bucks in a van. <laughs> Why but no debt. Why D.C.? Well, it was about three hours from home, from sure. Western Pennsylvania. Sure. And there was uh, a lot going on at the time in, sure. in the city. Yes, there um, was. Uh, so it seemed like a good place to, to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I moved in with a couple of buddies from college, slept on the couch for, I guess, four months until I was able to get my own apartment, drove around, found a help wanted sign, and interviewed Donahoe uh, Construction. Sure. And they hired me, fortunately. And, you know, so, yeah, I was there for about 10 years you know, before, I, before I started my own company. But it was a, down underneath the Holiday Inn there. Yes, that's right. That's where the mm-hmm. office is, right? Uh, just we financed that property. Yeah, so uh, great company, great family. Uh, oh, great, sure. Great learning experience for me to be there. So, and I learned a tremendous amount and still have great relationships with that family. Were you a construction manager then for them or what yeah, did you do? They, it was a construction manager, right. And then uh, mostly, you know, we managed uh, projects. I think I was a project engineer at first, uh, you know, and then they have confidence in you enough that uh, they give you your own project. And, you know, just through that way, through that learning business side. Any interesting projects you did at Donahoe that were... We did 1620L Street, I would say, which was interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, That we built an office building over top of a large transformer in the city. Most people don't know this because we built over top of it and around it. And you can't see it from L Street anymore. But we did that. And I had these huge trusses that spanned equipment that I had to get in place. And they were coming down from uh, Pennsylvania. And I couldn't get a permit. I couldn't get public space permits to get these large trusses in. And I had to do it. So I actually hired police officers, which is legal. I hired them for, I can't remember, maybe it was back then $20 an hour, whatever, mm-hmm. in uniform. And they closed the streets down for me. I don't, none of them asked if I had a permit. So that, that worked out well. Full move. We got them all the way into the city and to the site, and everybody seemed to, you know, get along. And 
but nobody nobody asked about a permit. So, but anyway, you know that by you know forty eight hours later, all the trusses were up in the building, and that was was that Mohammed Adid. That was that's right. Very good memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, Uh, Donahoe did several projects for him before he crashed. And uh, but anyway, yeah, that was again another great experience. To, to learn from. And then, you know, during that time also, I, I bought a piece of property in West Springfield, Virginia, and a uh, small piece of property. And I, I built my house on it, basically. I, I built a foundation around it. My dad came down, told him what I was going to do. He said, hey, I'll come down. He came down with a backhoe and a truck and stayed with me for that summer. And we built the foundation and everything with it. And I bought this modular boxes from Sullins Grove, Pennsylvania, and those shipped down and we dropped the boxes on top of the foundation. And then I built a big rec room around it and a garage and wraparound porch. And when I was done, you could not tell that was a modular house. Really? Yeah. Where was this now? This was uh, West Springfield, Virginia. Sure. Yeah. On Center Road. And it was a wonderful neighborhood. In fact, we still have good friends there today, but you know, it was a great stepping stone for me because I was 25 at the time. Wow. And, you know, I moved in there and I, I moved my buddies in with me. They helped pay the mortgage, right? They paid me rent. Mm-hmm. And so all that was working out really nice. And, and that, that is only important because it gave me equity. Mm-hmm. I immediately at a reasonably young age had equity that otherwise I would have had no access to. And that helped me for when eventually I launched the company. Mm-hmm. I used that uh, to get going. So... So 10 years at Donahoe, and yeah. then, so what, what got the itch going to, yeah, to I think, start uh, something? It was 93 now. Mm-hmm. After the crisis. It was after the crisis. And not quite after. Still, you know, mm-hmm. for residential, yes, after the crisis. Right. For office and other uses, it was struggling. still struggling, yes. And so I told Bob Hur at the time, he was the president, that I had this itch, and I just wanted to try to see what I could do on weekends and some nights, but very upfront with him. He understood, and he he said, "Do what you need to do." And so I bought this little row house, sixteen oh five Sixteenth Street, mm-hmm. with a partner. He was also at Donahoe. His name is Pete Nazarod, and that's the P N and P N Hoffman at the time. And together, we renovated the, the the house and built a pretty sizable addition off the back, and made it into six uh, condominiums. And the first open house I had. I was scared to death, but the first open house I had, we had 150 people through. And I remember just walking around incognito, you know, listening to all the comments because this was fresh information that was helpful to me. But the bottom line is we we sold it out. We made about $300,000. I was having fun. So I bought two more, did the same thing, bought four more. Just kept who marketed for the units for you? I, there was a guy named Dan Brady at the time. He worked for Dell Denton, if you recall that name. And I was introduced to him through my wife, who was working over there as well at, at Dell Denton. And that worked really well. So, you know, if you looked at the, the news headlines back in 93, you recall there was still a lot of, you know, crack problems. You know, the crime rate was really high, the murder rates were high, and then people were fleeing the city. That was the macro headlines. But if you look closer in the neighborhoods, you know, you know, 17th Street being one of them and around DuPont Circle, they were actually growing and going okay. And I saw that trend and it was moving east. Gentrification started. Yeah. So I, 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 I took a, a bet on 16th Street and we were able to get, you know, a piece of property for a song. 
and, you know, started that way. And so we continued on 17th Street, I'm sorry, 16th Street, then went over to Washington Circle, then went over to Logan Circle, Logan 1 and 2, we did that. Different parts of Q Street. And when did you do your first project on Logan Circle, out of curiosity? I think that was 96. You were somewhere. right at the cutting edge then. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was the uh, Logan 1 and 2 that was on the market for, I think, $300,000. And yeah, it was very, it was such an, it was such disrepair and I didn't pay, I paid a fraction of that for it because everybody was afraid of it. And we went in, we made eight condominiums out of it. We were able to do well with that. Who were your buyers out of curiosity? Do you remember what what the demographics were? That was a variety. I would say there was mostly a gay population moving into towards the 16th street Mm -hmm. and Logan circle, but you know, it was real mix. I had a variety of, of people, so it's hard for me to overgeneralize. I had one person, I can't even recall his name, but he worked at the White House. I'll never forget. He sent me a fax. Remember faxes? Sure, of course. And, you know, going back and forth, and he had a white, the White House on the fax cover, you know, <laughs> and he was one of Clinton's attorneys, uh-huh. uh, actually. And anyway, and there were a couple of others that bought into, into, into them that were interesting folk. It worked out, it worked out really well. We were literally doing the construction ourselves. I'd say myself and uh, my partner. And did you design the properties? I mean, did you use an architect? I mean, what, what did you do? I was an you... architect to get the permits and right. that worked out well, but I, my expectations were low on them because we were going to pretty much do what we wanted to do inside. So I really was check the box, get us a permit, right. get us to historic preservation and those you know needs. And then we'd take it from there. So, so you worked with the existing structure. You didn't try to do some unique designs or test the market or do anything like that? Or we, I think we did actually. We tested the market in a way that was kind of like insurance for me. And what I mean by that is I would go around and look at other condos for sale at the time and because I knew my costs, I was very confident sure. on the costs. It was sure. a revenue side that mm-hmm. I was really uh, new at. Right. And so I looked at all the other finishes, assessed all the other finishes. And at the time, and it's hard to imagine today, but granite countertops were unthinkable in a condo at, in 1993. So they were PLAM. And I thought, well, if I put granite in, and you get granite from my commercial time right. at Dono, sure. mm-hmm. I can put that in. And then the flooring was mostly carpet. Uh, well, if I put hardwood floor in, and I kept those choices and I thought, and I can control the cost, the market has to come to me. It has to. Mm-hmm. It, why would it choose PLAM over granite right. and carpet right. over, you know, hardwood? Mm-hmm. So those are the sort of, they were just sensibilities, the type of things that sure. we looked at and they sold, you know, like hotcakes. Uh, and, you know, we just so you hit the crest or the, you hit the. We were fortunate that too. Right. Luck, uh, luck is always a big part of it. Yes. The timing. So that was our start. And condos were great because uh, they churned cash and I needed cash. Sure. I put everything I had into it, but I needed to churn cash. Mm-hmm. So if you crushed it, the taxes didn't bother you at all. You didn't have a chance to. I mean, oftentimes developers do 1031s when they have properties, et cetera. So. I felt I didn't have that kind of time. I, it, it wasn't earned income, yes, but it was still worth it to me because I could keep churning fast enough. Mm-hmm. And then once we got to, you know, built up a little bit of cash, I was able to think more long-term. And sure. Long-term and wealth creation is apartments and holds and that sort of thing. And I was learning that part. Of, of course. So, yeah, that evolved uh, 
probably four or five years after mm-hmm. churning these condo deals. So talk about the growth of your company and, you know, started, I assume, with one or two people and right. just grew it from there. Yeah, we, uh, I was always, I've always been very uh, careful in approach of uh, really not a cowboy. I mean, my approach is much different than I think, you know, most developers who come from brokerages or financial backgrounds. But that said, I'm very uh, conservative on the, on the costing side and our approach. People who have invested with me at the very beginning are still investing with me. And I can say that over 28 years, we've never lost money. There were some projects we didn't make much, but most of the projects we hit our mark or better. And uh, so that, that sort of predictability is just part of the formula. I didn't go, we didn't go, we did not go too crazy on limbs or do things that I felt were, in my view, not responsible. But we grew it uh, organically and grew a staffing and by, I guess, mid-70s, I'm sorry, 2007, excuse me, before the crash, we were up to about 85 people and we were building all our own projects in-house and having a great time at it and really enjoying it. Mostly, mostly in the city, but a little bit in, in Bethesda area and in Alexandria area, mm-hmm. you know, primarily, primarily in the city. So you were mostly a construction company then going forward with it and then managing the condominium sales, et cetera, working with third-party agents most of the time. You didn't really have a team internally at that point. No, not at that point. Um, but as I started to grow, and this was reasonably early on, the sales representations, were, the quality of the sale was becoming more important to me. The brand was, was becoming known, and that became important to me. So we took that in-house reasonably quickly after about four years, maybe three or four years. I took that in-house. We became our own uh, real estate broker inside. We only sold our own product. That, that we weren't trading third-party stuff. But, and that worked out really well. We could keep churning the product out. And I, in fact, Michelle Giannini is still with me today, you know, 25 years later. So we have a nice team on the sales side that uh, are, you know, are trusted. And you know, they do a great job with that. But yeah, we were construction-centric. Right. I'll say that. But the, the, the great thing with that, I think, was that I had something to offer other developers in the city that I partnered with. You know, I partnered with you know, Michael and Steve Gewertz. I partnered sure. with John Gerstenfeld. I partnered with Mike Sussman and uh, Gary Squire, that whole group there. I partnered with Doug Furstenberg. I partnered with, you know, I, I'm a relationship guy. I'm a people guy anyway. So those, those relationships were and are important to me. And, but it we had, I had something to provide, something to offer that team. Others might have the finance experience, which I was gaining, but didn't quite have yet. Mm-hmm. But I had the technical experience and the execution experience on those things. And, and many of those projects were apartment buildings and retail that you know, we still own together today as partners. Sure. Throughout you know, DuPont Circle area that way. Yeah, that was, this, you know, that was sort of the slow trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 98, you developed your first ground up projects. Yes, yes. And actually, I was more comfortable doing that than the... Adaptive reuse? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was real comfortable with just clean, going up vertical. Yeah, you know, that's mostly what you did at Donahoe. I exactly. Said, right? And even my, even my youth, you know, coming up was just building new stuff. So that was really, that was great. I think our first tower crane project was on Connecticut Avenue, Park Hill, uh, up that way. And that was probably... I don't recall the exact year, maybe 98, 97, mm-hmm. something like 
And then once we did that, we never went back to the, the row houses. We just kept growing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, once we got to 2007, I think we were at about 370 million that year we delivered and, uh, you know, growing, climbing. So when did you do kind of pivot from, you know, for sale into the, the for rent business? Yeah, I would say that was probably in around 2000. Right mm-hmm. there. Or we, we could do that. And, uh, and was it because the condominium market got a little too uh, frothy and difficult? Or was it just you wanted to diversify a little bit? I wanted to diversify. And it was opportunity. And as I said, I, was, I really was looking long-term now. And uh, now trying to you know, create long-term wealth. That's mm-hmm. what I wanted to do for myself, my partners, work, work our business model. And it is less risky. It's a lot less risky. So, yeah, that's... That's where we wanted to be. And even today, when I look at properties, we still do condos. We've got, you know, condos that we're doing right now. Uh, but, you know, we, we really look at apartments first. If we can make the math work, we'd rather go that approach. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. You're really the first condo-centric uh, developer I've talked to. Most everybody else is, comes at it from the for sale, for the for rent yeah. perspective. Yeah. And it just it sounds like your approach was such that it made, made the most sense for you at the time. It did at the time, and it still does today in certain uh, circumstances. Here at the Wharf, we have a couple condominium uh, buildings, and it helps diversify uh, the product offering. You know, if you cases where you've got you know, five or 600 apartments, you start to saturate the market, and absorption is an issue. Exactly. So, you have a whole different product, you know, in your toolbox when you can say, okay, I can do condos for a hundred of them. And really that helps, that really helps spice up the IRRs, uh, the returns. And it's, it's, it's like a, you know, a mixture of, you know, long-term and short-term, you know, products that you're doing. And I think, you you know, if you know what you're doing, I, I think it helps enhance the bottom line for everybody. I was a finance guy in the city and, and of course, you know, when you're doing finance, unless you're in the home building sector of the finance side, you're looking for income producing real estate, not for sale properties typically. So, right. you know, I was always focused on that realm yeah. pretty much. Well, and I love it today. And I'm glad I made that decision, you know, a long time ago for that, because, you know, the, the apartments and retail that we have that really kept, kept us going, kept me going during the Great Recession. Right. Uh, it helped this past year in certain areas. And so, yeah, that cash flow coming in is. Uh, and the other thing about condominium development I wanted to ask you about, and everyone that I've dealt with that's mm-hmm. done it has always struggled with the, the long term product liability issue of, of developing condominiums. How have you dealt with that? How do you deal with that risk? We're, well, I think because, again, my approach is probably different than, you know, Many of most developers that I, we come, I come at it from a technical perspective. Our, my eye on the, the detailing is, is I, I think, reasonably strong. And we're, even though we don't build our own products today, we have great relationships with Clark and Belford Beatty and DPR and Donahoe. And, you know, I hate to leave anybody out. Sure. We work with just about everybody. Yeah, right. But we have a a very active construction management team Mm -hmm. and even my development team that are really sweating the details ahead of time. And fortunately, over the past 28 years, we have such such a great experience, you know, such great experience to pull from. We know where the liabilities are. We know about water. 
you know, about mold and we, you know, all these different areas that usually are, are what creates uh, latent defects and other pieces to it. We also know the, you know, the legal community that, you know, works transaction agreements and, you know, what, what that process is all about. Sure. So we stay ahead of all those things. We believe we do a very good job. Uh, after 28 years and probably 50 plus condo projects, I've never been sued by, by a condominium owner or a regime. We've never had you know, problems. I mean, there's some problems, with, yeah, obviously, but there's nothing that's systemic or long-term or any of that. It's, it's things that you know, we can fix pretty readily. And I, I can tell you, just on the, on the delivery of a condominium building, we're, we're, we're going to finish as the Maris, which will be next year. I'll spend almost a month on beta testing on that building before anybody moves in. So we'll, we'll be checking through the systems. We'll be checking through everything, you know, so that it's like a shiny new car that the smell and everything when you move in, that's, it's, it's done. Mm-hmm. You, know. you punch list that thing down to the iota. Then. We do, we do. And I've got a, a great team of quality assurance department that doesn't, doesn't go in in the end. It starts at the very beginning before things are covered up, before things, you know, even at the shop drawing stage of the materials and things we were procuring and putting in it mm-hmm. all the way to, you know, the powder puff cleaning at the very end. And that's led by John Bradley, who has been with me 25 years. Uh, so this is, again, uh, quality trusted, control. Yeah, quality control uh, on that, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So when I was a tenant at Two Wisconsin Circle in 2000, let's see, four five and six, I was looking out my window watching a project coming up and I saw your name on it. I said, wow, this is impressive. It's quite a job and Chase Point. And I don't know if that was your, one of your first luxury projects, but it was certainly a high end, very high end project. That thing I think did extremely well, did it not? It, It went really well. That was, that was, that was a great experience and still is a beautiful building that I, I believe that people that live there and, you know, can feel proud of. It's, it was a great addition to the neighborhood. Yeah. How did your relationship with Doug Furstenberg, your partner, develop? That was your first deal with him, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. And, and, and I'll never forget it because I, I went after that property, and, and as did Doug, of course. And he had better connections than me, and he gave the better pricing, and the, maybe the better <laughs> man won. That's fine. But Doug, Doug is a, by the way, Doug is a special guy. There's, I don't know of anybody that has more integrity than Doug. So I didn't know Doug, but other than he beat me on it, you know, and I think it was not that long after he called me up. And I remember that, that particular phone call because you know, we didn't know each other really. And he said, hey, I'm thinking I might do some condos on that site. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. I mean, was, that was a simple you know, question and answer. And so, you know, it was, it was almost surprisingly easy because I think we got along really well. There's a lot of, I think, similarities in you know, how we approach certain things. And, but I will say, again, he is a finance guy and a very smart one, a very good one. You know, and I'm, I'm a technical, you know, sort of execution kind of guy. So, again, there was a really good value in our partnership. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so, we so he managed the capital raising and you managed the construction side. Then, yeah, much. I guess. And then we, 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 there was soft boundaries in that. So, you know, he, sure. he respected my, my thoughts on the capitalization. And, the, and, of course, I respected his thoughts on the design and, you know, on the execution side. It was a really good, really good teamwork. And, 
And I think that the relationship and, and trust uh, for us to go after the Bethesda project, Lot 31 is what it was called right. at the time. And that was a big project. And uh, so Doug and I went after that together. And of course, we got it. I think one of the reasons that we, we got it, maybe there's a couple of them, but one of the reasons that we, we, we got it was the intersection of Woodmont and Bethesda was really large at the time. And it still we, is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not as large as it was, but we uh, we had, of course, Woodmont was intended to be a bypass right. for Wisconsin. Right. And then Bethesda Row was so successful yes. that all the pedestrian traffic was actually on Woodmont. So we actually, to, to help us, went over the board that was selecting us because it was a, a county property. Right. We put a camera on top of one of the buildings at that intersection. And I just left that camera roll for like a week. And then we were able to cherry pick, you know, instances where there was a woman in a baby carriage trying to get across the intersection, right. you know, almost hit by a van, you know, and other instances, you know, people walking. Yeah, the site was a huge stuff. parking lot. Right. That's right. And so part of our plan was to choke down that intersection. And I think you could almost see the, the board's faces when they looked at that imagery we we're showing on the screen of people almost getting run over out there that these guys get it. This is about public realm and pedestrian movement and all that. And so anyway, they chose us. And yeah, and, and Doug, he had the epiphany of, well, not only do we want to do that, but we also want to change Woodmont entirely, make it a crown so we can get more mass on you know, the Darcy side. Right. And that, that whole combination really, I think, worked well. I think most people do. Was this your first big mixed-use project at the time? Uh, I would you say Union Row was probably my first big one that we had. Union Row was over on uh, 14th Street mm -hmm. between V and W. Was that on your own or did you that have a partner? That was on my own, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I did have a partner, Credential was my partner on mm -hmm. that, but no, no, they were passive. So we had that and we had a couple others. You know, Adams Row was one in Adams, Morgan, where we, 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 we did retail that whole parking garage and loss on the top. So we had a few. So did you hire expertise on the retail side? I mean, how did, I mean, the inter, interplay between retail and, and residential can be touchy sometimes. So you either have to have a good architect or you need operators that understand what those issues are. Just out of curiosity. No, we, we didn't. <laughs> We're experts. <laughs> we winged it, I have to tell you. I mean, we winged it and, you know, I, I can't say it was perfect, but it worked. Were there lessons learned? Yeah, I think so. But, you know, I did err on the side of caution with respect to, you know, in this case, smells and, and sound, you know, the, the separation between the retail and the Union Rose case. Actually, the lofts too, those were condos on top. So we were playing with fire. And I, I, I get you, but it worked. It worked out well, actually, for us. And by the time we got to Lot 31, I feel like we were pretty well seasoned for this mm -hmm. um, because obviously retail and first floors on both sides of the street and you know, the apartments and uh, condos all together. What was most difficult about all that really was the uh, parking garage down below that you, know, you can't see from the surface. We had to blast through rock you know, to get to that was four a levels. huge. Canyon. <laughs> we would blast in the morning and in the afternoons. And, you know, no matter what you do, the neighbors are not going to like that. Oh, of course you know? not. So you just do your best with all that. Yeah. There wasn't as much residential density quite at that point then. But now, of course, there's a lot more. There's a lot more, yeah. Yeah, like a, a, a lot of these areas that have really, you know, improved 
over the past 10 years. It really is amazing. Yeah. So Constitution Square started about the same time, or was it or was it earlier? I can't remember. Constitution exactly. Square is a little bit after. It's afterward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then Doug said, come on down. And well, at that point, the Great Recession was upon us. Right. And, and that was a win-win. Doug had a, that's a large project. Oh, and that was, that was, Constitution Square was Doug's project, not mine. Right. So he had that, and he had a bit of a tiger by the tail. You know, he, it's a big execution. And so I actually, I think I approached him or... Maybe he approached me. I don't remember, but I was very grateful for for being able to put staffing. I could put some of our A staffing on that to help him execute that, mm-hmm. and that was good. I was just trying to keep people in seats as we weathered the storm, that sure. recession storm, and so that helped him in execution of the site and helped me in terms of keeping our staffing and the like. So yeah, that worked out well, and I think Doug did well with that with that project. Uh, yeah, that was a big one. Was that a condo for you to develop there? Did you develop for sale in that project? As part of it? No, I didn't. I, I did. I I didn't. I was just doing the construction management. Oh, for you were me. doing construction. Okay. Yeah, we did the. We didn't do the contracting. I, I think it might have been Clark, but we did the construction management. Got it. So CM job. We were, okay. Yeah, it was more of a CM job and helping with some sort of maybe value engineering earlier design things sure. that we could contribute on that. So mm-hmm. we did some of that too. So before we discuss the wharf, what other projects would you like to highlight, say, in the early 2000s until 2015, kind um, of got this project still going? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a flurry of activity. You know, we, we had a good time repurposing the Mather building on G Street into an arts lofts and affordable housing. That, that, was, that was fun. And the Alta, which is next to Thomas Circle, that was the city's first LEED-certified residential building um, mm-hmm. and so you know just doing those things today which are you know is that a standard. rental job the Alta, or is that, that was a condo sale? itself condo too also. Okay. and people had very low utility bills they were excited about that and you know got some press and all that but today those are all just standard things we do today but back then uh it was new and uh, now we they're just uh, again uh, did the city impose affordability requirements on some of your projects? Uh, not back then. They didn't. Uh, the Mather building, yes, I bought that off the city. Right. Uh, so part of the conditions there was to uh, have affordable housing, which I thought was terrific as that turned out for everybody. We got the affordable housing and we, we got artist lofts in. Mm-hmm. We had uh, a nonprofit retail on the first floor, which was an art studio. And I you know, took a building that had been largely vacant for a long time and made it into something. So that was nice. But beyond that, no, there, back then, it was before MIZ and some of the other regula- regulations for affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that came about later. So then around 2007, an RFP came up here in Southwest Washington. Right. Anacostia Waterfront Commission. That, that was uh, Andy Altman's vision originally. I believe. Yes. And he was a planning director under Tony Williams after uh, Mayor Barry was ended, up, ended his tenure as office. And yeah. the financial control board had just continued to operate the city. And then, you know, Mayor Williams kind of turned that around. Of course. And then Andy's vision here for Southwest Waterfront was let's do something with this waterfront. We need to do something. So he, he had a pretty interesting master plan uh, originally. Mm-hmm. 
Talk yeah. about that a little bit. Okay. You know, when you looked at the RFP, what was your thought process? Well, really, John, it, was, it wasn't even an RFP. It was an RFEI, Request for Expressions of Interest. So it really wasn't very committal. Got it. And to do it right, you have to commit a lot of dollars. But yep. that said, anyway, it was an RFEI. And I really have to credit, I, I have to credit Tony Williams. He was such a good mayor, you know, moving the city forward. Uh, from that. And one of his choices, good choices, was Andy, you know, bringing him in for the Office of Planning. And Andy had, you know, both had courage, you know, to move beyond what was the comfort level and boundaries of the time and, you know, created the Anacostia Waterfront Initiative to push things forward for real. And I, I don't think either of them get, get as much credit as they should for not only the development of a wharf, but also of Capital Riverfront and, you know, soon to be realized Buzzards Point. But that all began in that era. And anyway, so when the RFEI came out, there were a couple of people that said, hey, you boy, you should really go after this. And I, my first reaction was absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Because it was complicated, super political, and, you know, we just got done telling, sit, talking about all these other projects right. that were sure. like, hey, you know, why don't I just keep doing that? What do I need this for? But the, a couple of things happened. One, the economy started dropping. Right. And I started thinking that, two things uh, with that. The economy started dropping and a lot of developers were starting to bet futures. That's what the trends that I saw. And I did, I knew my, again, I knew my numbers and I wouldn't bet futures on any of my projects, meaning overpay for the land. Sure. I'm going to do that, expecting inflation to save me. And so I'm missing project after project because my competitors are getting them. And now this opportunity comes along. At first I didn't want to do it. And I thought, well, you know, this is more than the highest price. The winner of this, I mean, the, the, the waterfront was going to be, you know, qualifications of the team, the plan, the trust, the experience, you know, uh, capitalization and all those things. It isn't going to be just the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I have a shot here. Uh, maybe not a big shot, but I have a shot. Mm -hmm. So I decided to, you know, throw my hat in the ring. And then competitive juices started, you know, flowing and you know you end it to win it so i started thinking okay it's got to be a lot more than me so i talked to a different sort of network of people within the city and you know on how i can strengthen approach and doug at the time no i didn't doug was had his hands full on remember on no on the constitution square ah, he had right. his hands full with that and a few others so and that's the only reason i i, I didn't approach him otherwise i probably would have we I, I saw after bill strever and that was a connection through eleanor bacon sure and bill strever had developed much of the east coast actually he was he was actually a, a pretty high flyer at the time mm -hmm. and pretty well respected so he joined me on this team and, and then, you know, there were others, but we, we put that together. And then uh, what was, what became apparent to me is that this, the project would be big enough that it was going to scare a lot of people. And what a lot of the decision makers did not want uh, was a lifestyle center here, something formulaic that would come in and plop. So, while some of the names came in were really big and mighty, that same advantage was maybe a disadvantage. 
we came in, we were not threatening. We were neighborhood first. And I, ha- I did have a great reputation of working in all the neighborhoods, you know, over mm-hmm. time. And one could argue that, you know, the last 15 years prepared me sure. for that moment. So, yeah, we, we put a good team uh, together and uh, a really good plan. That was Talk about your team a little bit. I'm curious who that team was at the time, other than Streeter Brothers. Yeah, well, so we, uh, Stan Exit, you know, came in and he has... Uh, just a great way with him, with Perkins Eastman. Right. Uh, Stan is an amazing design urban planner. He, 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 he was all about intimate spaces, not grand. He used to talk about it being messy. You know, I would say, please don't say messy. You scare, <laughs> you scare people. I know what you mean, but uh, let's just use different words. Sure, right? of but, course. The, but he's a genius, you know. So he came in with those principles, right? Fred Kent, who is world-renowned in terms of waterfront development. We brought him in. Here I did bring in the specialists, you know, sure. people much smarter than me that have done this before. Mm-hmm. And I could reference sites from all over the world that we believe would be successful and more importantly, applicable to this site. And I think that the, that combination of, of design, of passion, of talent that we were bringing in is, you know, the, what, 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 what won ultimately and then it, is, it was about eight months of going through that uh, process and did you have a good land use attorney to help you i'm trying to remember who i used back then i'm embarrassed to say because we've got almost as many attorneys on this uh, site as we do construction workers. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a huge category let me let me tell you i'll come up with it later i'm not sure but it wasn't i did use Wayne for a couple i did Work with Wayne for a couple of things. Oh, Chip Glasgow, of course. Chip Glasgow. Yeah, I'd be embarrassed for That's his partner. Yeah, it is. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, wasn't with Wayne. But Chip and I had, had done several different other things together, and I trusted him implicitly and still do. And so, yeah, we worked, worked well together uh, on that and working with Those the guys have written the code in Washington, basically. Yeah, so. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I spent so many, you know, a couple of years at the Wilson Building. And, you know, and then the zoning commission and back and forth. It's just, you know, I, anyway, we're just still in the procurement or the selection process. It was, it was intense. And I think I spent towards a million dollars, you know, by the time I was selected of, of you know, my money. Just you need to, good legal advocacy, I think, in, in this process, yeah. especially since yeah. it's city-owned property. Well, that was the that was the other piece too. It's, yes, city owned property, but the city fought of what entity within the city actually controlled it. NCRA said they were in control. Anacostia Waterfront Industry right. said no, we're in control. And then when Adrian Fenty became mayor, he said, "I'm in control." <laughs> he said so. They blew them both up, or you know, and said it's coming to Dempet, right? And so I had these different relationships, you know, going and it. You know, so that was really messy. And then, as it turned out, the city actually only controlled sixty percent of the site. Uh, not, and I needed all of it. Right. Uh, so I needed that other forty percent because you know those are the spikers. Those are the you know you just can't do it. You can't draw the big capital in like that. So I spent the next couple of years. A lot of people think because we just ran out of cash or whatever. No, it was about site control. Right. I had to get the site sure. control. And until I had the site control, I couldn't finish the entitlements. I mean, what am I going to entitle? Someone else's property? I can't do that. So I, it was a sequence of events that had to occur. And, of course, these take a lot of time. I know JBG was one of them. JBG was one of them. I had, had a lot of exchanges with Ben Jacobs. 
you know, a very smart man. I, I respect him a, a great deal. But the fact of the matter is he had a controlling interest of the Channel Inn. And that was a coveted piece to the puzzle. And he knew it. And so, you know, I, I, I worked with Ben for probably a year and a half. Did maybe. you think about joining forces at one point? Yeah, I think I thought of just about everything. <laughs> uh, we, I bet you did. And we, you know, and but where we arrived at uh, was... You do yours, I'll do the rest. That was one of the possibilities to redevelop, you know, a hotel where the Channel Inn was. And maybe I'll swap you some land. I went back and forth. And I realized, you know, I'm dealing with a really smart guy. So, you know, you know I was careful with it. But, but to Ben's credit, he was above board on everything. And, you know, obviously he was looking out for his interests. And he should. And he did. And I, I, I respect that. But uh, we were able to coexist and, and develop around it. So it was really the other five or so tenancies, long-term groups that I had to extract from the process while, you know, we just call it containment <laughs> for the JBG <laughs> portion. And then in the end, we bought their interest. And they, 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 they liked what we paid for and we liked what we paid for. So it was, you know, in the end, it was a win-win. And in fact, that's where the uh, canopy and Hyatt house is today. So that was a, it was a good good outcome for all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I did. I ended up spending more of my time with the other more squishy details of some of the other control points that others had. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we were able to do it. We got it, we, we, we got it done by, I think, 2012. And but you we, lost your main partner at the time, too. So. Almost immediately. So Bill Strever was, is a great guy. They did a lot of great things. He's just, you know, he was up and down the seaboard and he was a mile wide and an inch thick. You know? And that model was okay, but, you know, whenever the recession came, it just stressed him. Mm -hmm. And it was unfortunately because, again, a good, very good person and a good company, but they went bankrupt and pretty early on. So I was almost three years at this alone, self-funding, and that was a very dark time, very lonely. And hard. Yeah, because, you know, Others didn't want to get too close to me because, you know, you know, it was almost toxic, you know, what I was into here. And I don't blame them, you know. Uh, it, it made, you know, it, it was the probability of succeeding was very low. But you knew you had to have another partner, is that right? Yeah, I knew I needed another partner, but I needed to have the right partner. And, you know, I was stubborn about it. I had, there were a lot of vultures that wanted to come in and I would not give up control. I just wouldn't. I thought, well, I... <laughs> I came down here with 400 bucks in a van. I might leave here. So, you know, I, 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 I stuck it out. I just kept, you know, self-funding as best I could with it and working it and talking to different folks. And I, I needed a relationship where I could align interests, maintain control, some, a group that would augment what I'm, I'm not strong at, you know, to help with that. And anyway, I found Madison and it was a very, it was very good timing. How'd you find him? It's a great question, too. We, I talked to them early on. They expressed interest. In fact, they were one of the runners-up in, in, in getting the site to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I talked to them earlier, and, yeah, for whatever reasons, it wasn't right for them or it right, wasn't right for me. And so, but a year or two later, they approached me again, and I said, well, let's talk, but, you know, under these conditions, this is what I was like to do you know and then they had their own conditions and you know we we met in the middle and it was it was it was more than fair and so that that worked out well it was a nice injection of cash into the process and i felt it gave us enough runway 
to get the entire site de-risked. At that point, I would go after the real big money. Now this is what, 2011, 2010, something like that? It was probably 2012. 2012. Uh, maybe 2013, right in there. So 2014, we began, began construction. Mm -hmm. uh, but we went all over the world looking for the right cash. Again, we had those who wanted to bring the cash in, but they were formulaic, too many, too many ties and controls to it. And I knew this was going to be something just an oddity. This was not going to be from a, a normal playbook. You know, we had the anthem, you know, that cost $60 million to build out, you know, and, you know, and I wanted to do the big bang theory. I didn't want to just creep into it incrementally because right. I felt there's not enough there there. It'll fail. Sure. You know, so I need a big chunk of cash to, you know, accomplish phase one and all these different uses. And we weren't going to go with a lifestyle center model. Right. So in 2012, yeah. I was in Las Vegas at the ICSC convention. Okay. And so I was wandering around and all of a sudden I went to the Madison Marquette booth. And lo and behold, they have a huge model there. Uh -huh. And Dave Brainerd of Madison Marquette standing there. And I said, Dave, what's going on? He said, yeah. The wharf. Yeah. Oh, your partners in the wharf? Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah. This is our deal. So, yeah. so he walked me through the model. I think you probably still have that model here, I imagine. Uh, We've updated it. Probably. Uh, yeah, I know the model you're speaking of. Yeah. So uh, that that back back then we were still uh, that was 2012, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. We we were we were hunt, hunting down large capital at the time. We were in China. It was in China with a mayor who's the CEO of Madison. And we, we did actually some money, but the real money actually that we were able to work through, and this was through a connection from Amir. No, actually it was Canadian. Oh, Canadian. <laughs> yeah, nothing is as you predict with this. So it was Canadian. It was PSP, which is the, oh, right. uh, it's the Royal Mounted Police Pension Fund, right? Uh, so great partners. And they saw the value in what we had, but it was too complicated for them. And so they said, if you can simplify it a bit, maybe we can talk our board into it. But the way it is, it's just too complicated. So they left. We were a little bit uh, down in the dumps. But we, we started re-describing, uh, repackaging, and how, how we would approach it to, to PSP. And they invited us up to Montreal, and I presented it to their board. They accepted how we packaged it. And it was, uh, it was wonderful. They came in with a big, just a shot of capital that we needed. Uh, they recognized a very big imputed value for the site. So the cash that I had in it, uh, the cash that Madison put in it, and then the imputed value of the property was significant. And they just matched it with cash. And that was enough, right? That was enough to, we were off to no. the races. Now all we needed was a loan, which was much easy, pretty easy to do once you have it. One, when Capital you said center. complicated, explain why it was complicated and how you simplified it for them. Just out of curiosity. Yeah, well, we, for, one, for instance, the, the two hotels here, um, mm -hmm. we cut them out of the equation out of the first tranche. We said we're not going to try to sell them on hotels. So the Hyatt House and the Canopy were off the table as were all first floor things. And then a 1,000 main trophy office building on that side. I carved that out. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. It'll be a big bang, but less of a big bang, right? We'll just carve that out because that's scaring them, that office. And then the Intercontinental, which is now the Intercontinental, I put an RFP out for that and Carr won that site. So 
we're in an upward majority partner on it, but CAR is a managing member on it. And so that de-risks that site. So now I repackaged it with, you know, the video condos and I could convince them that I know how to do condos and the apartments, which, you know, the biggest risk of it was probably the anthem and the apartments on top and everything sort of shrunk. So I was able to convince them on that. And then once we got going, we said, okay, what about the hotels here? We started adding on, you know, the Hyatt, Hyatt house and the other, after they saw it, we were doing well with our, our construction predictability on the costs. I brought in Clark for the whole thing, as actually as a design build. And they started getting confidence in his PSP. So we started adding back the other pieces one by one. That's how we did it. That's great. So they are your sole equity partner, or did you, you don't have any other? I do have, I, I, we have some syndications inside our, inside our grouping, meaning Madison, Hoffman, Madison, but not a lot, but we do have some. Really, PSP is yeah, a, a real capital partner here. Talk about the construction issues that you faced along the way here, because a project of this magnitude is not going to be an easy project to build, particularly on a waterfront. Just to give you a little backdrop, when I moved to Washington in 1985, we were the construction lender on Washington Harbor, which is a major mixed-use development right. on the water as right. well on the, right. on the Potomac River. Right. And they had, within the first year of operations, a major 100-year flood came to Washington and filled the, the underground parking lot with water because apparently they had a, they built a, a gate that was supposed to protect the, the river from going into the thing, but it didn't happen. It, it didn't work and it went all water went over. So just out of, with that in context, how did you, I assume you knew about that history a little bit. And well, we knew all about that and that was helpful to us actually later on because it's a, you know, it's a history lesson. And so we're fortunate that the banks here at the channel are higher than the banks are in uh, Georgetown. And we knew where the 100-year floodplain and the 200-year floodplain is. So and then we went about 18 inches or 20 inches above that yet. So we had some protections there. Really what we needed to do is keep out the water. <laughs> Which, you know, that in itself is not easy. You're going two stories down. And so the geotechnical engineers and our, our team were able to do that with uh, sheet piling and a bunch of other you know, things think, uh, that we built around the water's edge to keep the river out. And then uh, we had the tunnel going through the Wamata tunnel. And that was probably our trickiest part because whenever you take weight off the tunnel, it wants to rise. It wants to float. Yeah. And so, and that's not good, right? So, no. Now, the, if the Wamata moves, Wamata tunnel moves a quarter of an inch, that's a big deal, right? You can't do that. So, we had to add weight as we took weight off. We took dirt weight off. We added weight through trusses to pin it down so the, the damn thing can't move, you know? And that was very tricky. We did that over on phase one, over what we call district pier right now uh, next to that and phase two is even worse we have a tunnel that goes around the edge of the hole and back out and that was made out of steel your civil engineering background probably helped you a little bit with that thought process well it, it yes to extent but it, you know it's be quite honest overwhelming for me i mean we ha I, we have the real civil engineers <laughs> who do this day in and day right, out sure and, you know a team of them on it you know i only know enough to understand what they're talking about right 
it was an amazing process to get through. Frustrating. Everybody was frustrated. You know, everybody wanted to do the right thing, but we would because it was on a curve. You know, there's energy that you know that train sure. would go around. You know, right. that would try to move it. You know, so we had to keep it from the curve from moving sideways, and then we took the weight off, and then we had to keep it from floating up. And it was steel. It wasn't even concrete. On How many phase feet two. below the garage? It was probably, uh, oh, it was in the garage. It's in the garage. It's, in, it's literally on the side of the garage, right. We went all the way around it. Oh, my uh, goodness. So uh, we, we were able to go three stories down on the one area of the garage and only two stories on the other because that tunnel was just too impactful for it. But we were very excited when we finally were able to encapsulate it. Teams cheered on that one because it's never going to move again. And Go underneath the Anacostia River or is it go... Yeah, the channel, the Washington Channel. It goes underneath it. Under the channel. Yeah. The, okay. this, the, the one over on District Pier goes literally right under the water and right over to National Airport. Okay. Uh, Reagan National Airport. Right. And the other one is going from LaFont Metro Station over there to Waterfront Station. Mm-hmm. And it's just curving around right. in, into right. the hole. Right. But the other, other point that we, we did get ahead of was the vibration. One of the concerns we had while we were you know, in the hole, designing how we brace this down, and you could feel a train coming underneath you. You could feel it. And we're like, I can feel it. That is going to transfer into the building. And what does that do? So then we had to get a lot of uh, vibration engineers involved. $10 million later, we were able to put these really thick neoprene pads separating any kind of footings or connections wow. from the, the tunnel itself. That's something you can't predict. Is there precedent in this? Did they have precedent? <clears throat> there is some precedent. I don't know that it's here in the city. Not to this extent that we had to do it. But I, again, I wanted to err on the side of caution because if you're wrong, you're really wrong. There's no, you can't do anything about it if we build the whole structure up and we go without that $10 million. So that was gut-wrenching. Might not have been a problem, but if it is... Big change order there, right? Yeah, big change order. If, yeah, if it is a problem, it's really a problem. So we, we took the cautionary route. Did Clark you know, build that? I mean, were they involved with that? Or Clark they? was uh, phase one, mostly, and Belfort Beatty was working that over into the, uh, into the phase two. So uh, they were dealing with that. And they did a great job, by the way. It was hard for them because everybody wants to be productive. I understand that. You know, but sure. It's hard whenever you're having to, you know, you have a tunnel that's moving on you all the time. So did you know about that when, I mean, you were building phase one. Did you know about that issue for phase two in advance of starting construction over there? I, 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 I knew the tunnel. We knew the tunnel was there. We didn't know it was made out of steel. Nobody I see. There's no records of it, you know. Really? And when we got to it, it was like, wow, this is... This is not what we thought, you know. So, yeah, that was a surprise to us. Interesting. Yeah, yeah anyway, so but that, those are probably our biggest. Everything else, you know, I wouldn't say it's rudimentary. We do have cold warp glass that we're, we're putting on one of the buildings, actually on the Maris, where it's, we're actually taking straight glass and we're bending it in place. Wow. Yeah. They do this in Italy and other places, and it's been done for about 10 years. My concern was, okay, well, crack in a year or two, but it won't. The technology is proven. So can you quickly do an overview of the scale of phase one and then what you're building in phase two and a little bit about the timing and kind of the scale of that okay. project as well? Well, phase one, well, it has the Anthem, which is a 6,000-seat you know, theater concert hall. Mm-hmm. And the trophy office of 1,000 Main is about 
270,000 square feet. Is that leased now? It's leased, yes. We have a Class A office at 800 Main, and that's about, 200, that's about 220,000 square feet, and that's leased as well. We have the Intercontinental Hotel, which has 278 rooms, I believe. And we have the Channel Apartments, you know, 501 apartments there, and then Encanto Apartments, 170 apartments in Encanto. So that collective, and then we have the VO, which is a condos, 108 condos, I believe. Are they sold out? Oh yeah, long, long gone. Their resales are, are going down. And by the way, they've increased about 20%. Wow. All the resales in just, what, a couple of years. So that's really nice. Retail, we have retail on first floors everywhere. We must have 30 types of restaurants and food and beverage forms here. How many square feet of retail? Yeah, it's a great question. I should know that off the top of my head, but I'm Mm -hmm. going to go with probably about 140,000 feet. Okay. And it's almost all restaurants then, right? Most of it is restaurants. There's no uh, apparel or anything like that? Yeah, we do have some apparel and we have some sundry type of things, impulse purchases, that kind of thing. Sure. Artisanal things over on District Square. And we have, I think those are mostly used groups here. We have the two hotels, Hyatt and Canopy, collectively a little over 400, maybe 410 rooms there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a meeting space. And then phase two? Yeah, phase two, another million square feet of trophy office that is about two-thirds leased up. Really? Uh-huh. That's great. Yeah. Who are your tenants for that? Well, Williams and Conley is our big tenant. Oh, that's that great. Isn't it? And we have a couple of others that we are in the process right now, working through LOIs and into leases. You have a big association in the in phase one, right? It's, it's well, we have tenants. the well, we have APA, APA, uh, right, uh, which is in eight hundred Maine. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the business roundtable, which great. is over in one thousand Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Washington Gas's headquarters are over there. We have Finch our architects, Fish architects that are over there, uh, architects attorneys mm-hmm. are over there. Several others. It's That's uh, great. It's been really good. Yeah, we we were people were a little worried about you know being away from the CBD. But really, actually, in particular today, with you know, having gone through the, yeah, this is really a, a sought-after location. You have light and air, wellness, sustainability, employee or staffing, recruitment, and, you know, maintaining its, you know, light, the lifestyle. All that is really conducive for where office use is going. That's great. Uh, so we're the benefactor of that. So your office leasing is probably doing better than you expected. Yeah, a lot better. Yes, we're feeling very good. And we have one independent building that Atlantic Magazine is is going into. And uh, they're actually talking to a few other groups on Mm -hmm. finishing leasing of the boutique trophy, I would call it. How's the retail held up? During the pandemic? Surprisingly well. We've worked with them. We deferred and, 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 and abated uh, a lot of the rent. We are we are now reconstituting certain weak tent, you know, spaces uh, that, that didn't make it and probably wouldn't have made it long term anyway. But I am excited about the uh, reconstituting of them. We have some I think better activation coming into phase one, like the boardwalk bar is an example. It's an arcade. Shuffleboard and pinball and uh, electronic, you know, uh, games and things. So uh, that'll be fun. And we we look, we're talking to a karaoke group right now. So we're looking for more things than just food and beverage. Sort of activators, sure. Destinations. I, I retail's moving towards experience. Mm-hmm. 
It's a it's experience and impulse and artisanal. You know, anything sure. that comes in a box is Amazon's got that. So we're we're really you know careful in how we curate. Have you thought years. about kind of a torpedo factory type of tenancy at all? I mean, a thought process? Any kind of you know creatives that. The problem with, and I like the Torpedo Factory, but it doesn't make money. It's more of philanthropy. Really. Sure. It, it really is. The artists, you know, they, they can't pay for it. And so this is a very dense real estate play. Got it. And while we love to do things like that, I just, we just can't afford it. The numbers it. don't work. The numbers just don't work. So we're, we're, we're working everything we possibly can that things are commercially sound mm-hmm. that provide a really nice experience for when people come. Sure. Come here. How'd the hotels hold up? They did okay. I mean, they, you know, that's comparative. I mean, they're, they're number one or two in their comp sets continuously, but the comp sets aren't very good right now. No. So we're hitting in the 30%, 35% and climbing occupancy. We're hitting over here and, and spike, you know, spike up into 45%, sure. but doesn't stay there, it goes back down. But it's slowly, you know, incrementally climbing back. It's just going to take a little while. Is, do you have any theater in phase two at all or, or not? Any kind of entertainment type of setup there? We, 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 we don't have that in, in the phase two, although our public realm is pretty special. We have a, an area we call in the Grove where uh, we have a, a fire pit. We have a fire pit in phase one also, but this is a gas fire pit in the Grove. And it's sort of really great congregating area for cafes and for cafe where a lot of the restaurants will spill out into it. We actually have chandeliers that will go across Wharf Street, kind of nice. like uh, Austria, uh, Vienna, Austria, if you've been there. We didn't copy those chandeliers. They're our own form of it. But, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it's going to be pretty special. Our marina is going to be, I think, theater in its own. We have got another 250 slips we're adding. We'll have we'll be able to facilitate mega yachts there. So we're really trying to work it through the public realm. It makes something very special that's accretive to phase one. But I don't want to compete with Pearl Street Warehouse, which has a really great music venue, Union Stage, which has another music venue, of course, the Anthem. And uh, then we have our transit pier. That I was is, just thinking uh, like an arts theater or even an outdoor venue like the uh, Union Market has. We're actually looking at uh, possibility on uh, transit pier. We have been doing movie night there and doing some other things sure. over there. I want to be careful, too, that we don't, you know, phase two doesn't become the new shiny toy and phase one's forgotten, <laughs> right? So uh, we're taking, taking great care and reconstituting sure. phase one, upping yep. its game. So everything sort of blends together. And when I open this up in October next year, I'm not going to refer to phase one or two ever again. No. It's just the war. The war. Fi- right. We, we finished the war. Sure. And, and that's what it's all going to be about. Yeah, it's like when you're building a regional mall, you had an anchor and a another wing. Hey, it's all part of the mall. All know? part of the mall. Yeah, yeah same exactly. thing. Yeah, same thing. So let's so let's transition to your company a little bit and its evolution from a condo converter to a very large mixed use developer. And what services did the firm offer, and how were you able to recruit and retain talent, and keep your people engaged? Well, first of all, we build cool things. You know, I think everybody has professional stimulation here. We are, we don't do cookie cutter in cornfields, you know, so this isn't just a rudimentary operation. I think everybody has a fulfillment and what they're doing is, you know, improving community. And we work, we work, I mean, it takes work. We care to our culture here so that we operate as a team. 
And people, I think, genuinely like each other here. We've got a lot of smart people, a lot of talent, and making sure that we're applying the, 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 those resources with each other and uh, working right. I think that that helps with, I think, staffing satisfaction and you know, keeping people here and wanting to be here. So you know, that's that's that that's part of it. As far as services, as I mentioned, we do uh, read. We'll do our sales, you know, for our condominiums mm-hmm. and we work with marketing teams, but we're very active on the marketing uh, side of the equation. While we don't, you know, do property management, we are very active on the asset management part of the equation. We're very hands-on on that. And at some point we might move into property management, but I need more volume. to Who do manages that. the retail for you? Right now we manage all the retail. Oh, you so we do retail. do that. Yeah, you do the commercial. Retail. Okay. So all the commercial the retail. Office. Office is CBRE okay. uh, in, in our case here, so yeah, mm-hmm. we do third party that. Mm-hmm. But as far as yeah, that's a very uh, good point. As far as the public realm and the retail, that's the face and the, the right. properties, that's the value of it. That's our image. So we like that's in our DNA. We want to be. We do that. So we do that in house. But the other stuff are more of a commodity. And until we get to enough, I would say enough uh, volume, it really just doesn't. Pay us to do it's it. It's not a profitable business. It's, it's not. Sometimes. You have to get you know well over ten thousand units and yep. have some other things. And so, yeah. yeah, our platform is is very unique, and the buildings and you know that we're doing are, are unique. So it's not. Yeah, it's not really at a scale just yet. Two of my former ULI mentees worked for you. One does still, and another one left and started his own. Gig started the yeah. went, went off and did yeah. Uh, yeah. Y hotels and yeah. apparently done pretty well with that. Yeah, yeah. Val's a great guy, and I, I really get I, it pleases me, you know, to to see that you know that we have, I, there's a whole list of people that have, have worked with me, you know, over the years, and it's it's great to see him again. It's great to see him succeed. And Washington really is a small town. It is you know, for those who stay really and, small, and it's so you know that's nice. That's really good. And then the other one is is Rob Stewart, who's down in North Carolina now, I guess, working yeah. a project down there. Yeah, yeah. Rob is great. He's he's helping us. We we love Raleigh, Raleigh and Durham, and we have a team that'll be in Charlotte next week. We're we've got a really nice community project there. Uh, we've got two of them actually, and a, another one that has a hotel. What brought you to Raleigh, Durham? Really, just looking for opportunities. And I have a good friend who worked with me long ago at Donahoe. His name's John Florian. So he's He's a trusted friend for over 35 years, you know, great guy. And he's been wanting me to go down there forever. And it was never, the timing was never right. But as soon as we finished, you know, phase one here, I said, okay, take a breath. Let's, let's take a look at this down here. And we did, and we were able to strike gold pretty quick on something that we, we, we really like a lot. And we're in the middle of developing it right now. And John is, John has his own development company, or he did, and he, he decided to fold that and you know join me and he runs, he runs our Raleigh office down there and then Rob as you pointed out he moved down there with his family and we've got a great office and we've hired a lot of smart people down there and there's a lot of room for growth for us in that region. Is that the only foray outside of Washington you have at this point? Yeah pretty much I mean we're mm-hmm. obviously Northern Virginia is part of Washington part of the DMV we've got Really nice uh, project uh, in Falls Church that we're we're in the land planning right now. We're very excited about. 
Actually, yeah, we, we started with EYA and then EYA is moving into some other things and we're going to take that on ourselves now. And uh, but we still have a great relationship with EYA. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. Everything was very, very amicable on that. So, yeah. So, yeah, Bobby Young and Top, by the way, great guy. We've known each other for, I guess, 25 years, 30 mm-hmm. years, something like that. But no, so there is a project there and we've got a couple others in Arlington that uh, we're working on on the pre-development side of the equation. But we're looking further into Richmond. We put a few offers into Richmond and I'm hopeful on that and other parts of the Carolinas. We'll see. We'll see where all that So goes. outside the wharf, you've also developed properties in the perimeter of the yeah, wharf, right? Yeah, across the street over here, at the, mm-hmm. the, we call it the Banks, uh, which is a nice apartment building and, mm-hmm. and uh, church. We seem to get the churches. Uh, so this is our third church that we've you know rebuilt, and uh, which is great because it's all part of a community. And we were able to build an apartment building. Are those it. RFPs that you answer, or do those people come to you, or um, do you just know about them? Or it's, it, in this case, it was just sort of the church was getting run down. There was no RFP. I just approached the pastor, mm-hmm. and you know, I guess he he felt I was a nice enough guy to you know sure. talk to, and yeah. you know, you know, see if there's a win-win out there. And there was. I mean. They were really, you know, they were kind of hurting. Their infrastructure was, you know, falling apart. They had some problems with that. So anyway, this gave them a nice annuity, a new church, mm-hmm. and of course gave us a profitable uh, building for which we own, and we like that. And we've got a couple others at Waterfront Station, and we're also partnering with DC United for Audi Field. We have a uh, pretty large development over there, and that'll be that's very exciting. Yeah, we, and Bow that you just mentioned, he he actually managed the Bower. I think maybe he did name that after him, but over in the Capitol Riverfront, uh-huh. he, he did a great job with that before he left. Uh, so that was a success. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, so we we got a bunch of things here. That's great. So it appears the company emerged well from the pandemic with significant activity phase two. And you just talked about your other projects in North Carolina. How did the personnel situation handle? pandemic for you? I mean, did you have to do special things at all or how did you work through some of those yeah, issues? Yeah, I was scared to death because we had to work remote and, you know, we make we make hundreds of decisions, sure. you know, I don't know, daily, but every other day. And those decisions cannot all be confined to a structured Zoom call. A lot of it is just riffing between two people and creating, you know, it's just, you know, it's just people being people around each other. And of course we missed that for a year. And I was worried we were gonna miss a lot of decision-making and catches. And we did, we missed some, but by and large we did okay. Everybody really stepped up. They worked from home, we all worked from home. We had Zoom calls and I I decided we're gonna do an all company, you know, kind of call. Uh, We started off once a week and then that went to every two weeks just to make sure that everybody felt part of something bigger was because it's easy to get siloed, especially this past year into something and start to be a little depressed about it. You needed to know the greater good and how that connects to others and, you know, how we need each other and how we, you know, where we're going with all this, what's the big picture. Mm -hmm. And so that was important for me to, you know, instill into the, into the group and our leadership stepped up. I'm, I'm very, Right. It's hard with families and stuff. With, oh, know. my gosh, yeah. But, you know, at first it was annoying, but after, you know, it's interesting. 
I think my, I know my personally, my tolerance level went up and I mean, it's easy for me. I, my kids are old, but I'm just, you know, when sure. the poor guys, you know, or, you know, at the, at the computer and the kids are running around, yeah. you know, and, you know, you know, pulling on his hair or doing whatever they're doing, you know, yelling and stuff, you know, at, you know, it's really got to be hard for them. But, you know, we, we, I, we did our best to try to make everybody feel, look, this is a real, you know, this is a real difficult time for everybody. And so nobody's judging. Just do the best you can with everything. Uh, so going through that. Yeah, yeah, they did. They really did. That's uh, great. So and now we're starting to, you know, come back into the office. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that that seems like that's that's working well, too. So so off that theme, urbanization and transitory development have been leading trends over the last 20 years. Right. Will the current crisis redirect some of that thinking due to more remote work and the cost of this type of living being unaffordable going forward? Not necessarily for your company, but just generically. For yeah. I mean, I... What's I, your belief? Yeah, my, my belief is that transit-oriented development, it has been around for 20 years. And in the beginning, it was, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. And as far as transit stations go, I mean, cities, especially the older cities, are not building any more of it. Some of the younger cities, like Charlotte, have plans for it, but that's mm-hmm. going to take a long time before yep. it really happens. And even Raleigh's looking at they some need things. it there. Yeah, they do. Uh, but it's going to take a while. And I guess what I'm saying is, I do think it's going to diminish because I think the low hanging fruit has been picked. And so now it is much more expensive. And if it hasn't been already developed, there's probably a barrier, a reason why it hasn't been developed. So I'm paying more attention to tertiary cities, exurbs, those sort of nodes and areas that are near big city that I feel like kind of like a stock. I think that it's going to appreciate and value going up. That, that's sort of where I see it, where there's some sort of a little bit of value left in some of those, in those spaces, area. I think those will appreciate That's just my hunch. question is, how far out on the risk spectrum do you go on that's right. So do you want to be a venture capitalist and look at tertiary markets, or do you want to be in secondary markets? And of course, pricing in the Carolinas has gotten really aggressive, apparently, from what I'm hearing. So uh, certainly in North Carolina, maybe not as much in South Carolina, but still pretty active down there. It is active, but it's all relative. It's active right here, too. It's sure. active in D.C. Some of the differences, though, in, 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 in the Carolinas... Your, your speed to permit, your speed to yes. entitlement, yes. your um, business environment yes. are much different than yes. they are here or, you know, a mature city that has a lot of legacy issues. All that has to be, you know, placed into the thinking. Mm-hmm. And what are the current politics? And where are those politics taking you? Sure. So, you know, as a developer, you're very vulnerable because it's going to take you maybe three years to wind up from, you know, an idea to actually thinking you're going to break ground. So a lot can happen in those three years. So yeah, all this is sort of, sort of sort of macro talk, but I am looking at these sort of secondary and tertiary markets. And like I said, even Richmond, there, you know, your, your yields will be higher, but, you know, your cap rates will be higher too, you know. And so if you're looking to hold, that's that might be a good thing. If you're sure. looking to merchant build, maybe not so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, it depends on what your goals are you know, sure. uh, on the end. So as I said, I, we're continuing to shift the model around of what I'm looking at and doing. Mm-hmm. I like complex projects like 
the wharf, but I don't want to do all complex projects. Maybe one at a time is enough. Our false church is, is reasonably complex. Our seaboard, which is in Raleigh, is relatively complex in the community mm-hmm. development. It helps get a footprint, a platform going. But if we can work through, you know, several smaller, say 250 apartment you know, buildings. Your success here might take you to some other cities that say, gee, can you do a waterfront project for us? You know, in Baltimore, let's say, or, you know, or uh, Philadelphia or New York or. Yeah, I did that to Philadelphia. Try. I lost a half a million dollars, uh, you know, trying. So. Pittsburgh is another city. Pittsburgh is another city. Pittsburgh has its own set of, I think, virtues and challenges. Bit of a good old boy uh, system up there. Philadelphia has a lot of politics with it. And we we did go after uh, Penn's Landing. And uh, the mayor was here from Philadelphia. Great guy. And uh, talked with us. And, you know, the group that is overseeing, you know, came and talked with us. We did... We did try. We did apply sort of similar formulas from here to Penn's Landing, but it made it all Philadelphia. Didn't try to copycat DC sure. or any better than that. But they ended up going a different direction. Navy Yards right next near it. Uh, we tried over there as well. So it's not as easy as it might think. You might think to take this sort of formula as successful as it is, and you know, apply it other places. Well, everything, every project is different, as we well know. Yeah, sure is. There's always different elements right. of what people want. Right. So, yeah. So in addition to, well, let's go, let's go into the sustainability issue. How do you, how do you view sustainability and has that uh, definition changed as a result of the crisis? Yeah, I definitely think it, it's more, I think we look at it more holistic and we will. The air we breathe, the light in the air, access to the outdoors. Does that change your thinking as far as projects? Yes. I mean, it, how we design it in projects Definitely. And yes, I think floor plates were always, I shouldn't say always, floor plates were trending a bit smaller on the office to provide more light and air in. And given, you know, the sustainability issue, but also the remote work factor. Right. You know, a lot of the grinders, so to speak, I'm being pretty harsh with that term, but, you know, those who can work remotely, many will, maybe not all the time, but a portion of their week, maybe it's two days a week. You know, yep. remote and other three in the office. But the bottom line is it's going to impact the square feet on the office uh, side. How much? I, I don't know. Nobody knows. Maybe it's only 10%, but if it's only 10%, that's a lot. But anyway, I think the smaller floor plates, light and air. I can tell you that our office spaces here where we have 10-foot interior ceilings is a big advantage from the CBD. Um, the reason I was able to do that was because we can spread our GFA out over a bigger footprint here. Nice. Uh, which you just can't do that in the CBD. Right. You're one and done on your building yeah. site. Yeah. And the economics just doesn't afford it. So having taller ceilings and DOAS systems where you're you're pumping fresh air into the building, which you know only new buildings you know really will have unless it's retrofitted. Those things are important to a lot of businesses. And unless you check that box immediately, they're not even going to look at you. So So do you have more outside air now coming in your in yes. phase two than you do in phase one? Or I mean we were, we were, we have a DOAS system in phase one as well, but that was a, it's the difference is that was a real luxury and state of the art kind now of thing. Now you have to do it. Now it's like, yeah, you got to do it. So that's sort of the difference. But What um, about solar and other alternative energy? We have, actually, we have a small cogen plant in our one building over here, moving natural gas into electricity. And it's really the efficiency is the off-gassing, the heat. 
-hmm. You recapture the heat and you put that in to make hot water. You know, that's the efficiency part of that equation. Plus, we all know that our electricity is actually generated by coal in Virginia, at least this area is, and natural gas, while it is carbon uh, producing, it's half that of coal. So we feel good about that. Uh, We're not overly fancy with it. It's just a cogen plant that sends uh, electric back into the grid Mm -hmm. and into our system, and we use off-gassing. Also, you done any geothermal at all? Not here. Uh, I have it on my own house, actually, geothermal. Interesting. I'm a a believer in that. I like that. But as far as uh, here, solar, we do some solar, but we have some solar over on our one building. But the reality is there's not a, you know, we can do some, but it's not a whole lot. If you look on top of Arena Stage now, that's interesting. They have a huge roof on that. It's almost all solar. So they can use that to produce electricity, sure, which is great. I could only produce enough electricity for about 33 households. That's about it. Um, well, the city has some pretty ambitious goals by 2033, I believe it is. Yeah. Well, they want to yeah. be zero. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is tough. Goals are one thing. Yeah, that's, that's right. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. In addition to the pandemic, we've seen considerable social strife over the past year plus. What is Hoffman's position on racial and gender equity among your employees, vendors, and investors? Well, very inclusive, and we're we're actually we're we're proactive at it. I you know I I love the diversity that we have uh, already within the organization. You know, we have we have black, white people of color. We've, we've got, you know, I think female, male, we may have more females than males, you know, with the company. I'm not real sure, but it's pretty close. We have female executives, we have black female executives. You know, we've got, you know, we've got pretty good diversity. And, you know, that said, was that uh, organic or was that unconscious or? I I think, no, I think it was just organic. I mean, it's just, it's part of, I think building, developing in the city. If you, you know, but that said, you know, yeah, we can do more, you know, and so I'm more conscientious today than I was, you know, a little over a year ago or yeah, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And, but it just really it helped awaken me and many others to, okay, let's, let's evaluate what, what more can we do? And so, you know, with, with respect to, you know, the businesses we work with and whether it's, you know, retail is hard on many levels right now, just for its survival, but, you know, we're, very, we're much more conscientious today of it than we were. But that's, I'm proud of where we are. But if you look at, you know, if you look again at trends, if you go back to where, where, where you or I started, you know, let's say four oh, years ago, tremendous. it was all white male dominated, yeah. you know, the construction field and the development field. And maybe that continued as of 20 years ago, then you, you saw a lot more you know, female engagement into it. And then 10 years ago, it started to pick up. And where I see us today, I think we've made you know, great strides. And there's, so the trend is going the right direction, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. What is your filter for opportunities? How does your lens vary from other developers like JBG Smith or Stonebridge who develop large mixed-use projects? Yeah, that's a good question. I, my perception, JBG Smith and say Doug, Doug Furstenberg yeah. or Stonebridge, I would say JBG Smith is more institutional and the, the cost of capital is less because they're a public uh, company. So they're looking at it uh, through that lens uh, more than me. I'm more entrepreneurial, I would say. Sure. Uh, with respect to uh, Stonebridge, you know, Doug is more his financial, financial lens. 
on that more commercial office on that end. And I would say we're, we're more, although Doug's been doing a lot of residential lately too, but more on the financial and the capital side of the equation, he's looking at it. We're looking at it, I think, more on the entrepreneurial. We have retail and hospitality and other things mixed in with it, maybe a larger degree of mix. I think back to our roots, you know, more we're looking at things just a bit more technical and they might be looking at it a bit more financial. Although I, I don't want to sell ourselves short. I have some, we have some very smart people mm-hmm. who are overseeing, you know, our, our capital investments and, you know, all the financial equation because these projects are complex yes. and the cost of capital is obviously a big driver in everything we do today. So in that vein, projects you manage, what are the best ways to mitigate risk in your opinion? I think that it's easy in development to get distracted by all the noise or by the shiny objects because they're fun. They hit the creative side of us and we all, most of us get drawn to that. I, I think having a discipline, really the sort of just the rudimentary meat and potatoes, you know, constant, relentless oversight of detail and maintained schedule is essential. And then looking at the projects, and not necessarily enjoy all the 95% that is right, but search out, hunt down the 5% that could be wrong. And spending a lot of resources on that. We, we, we try to do that. We try to do that every day. And we're, you know, we're not perfect at it, but uh, I think by and large, we, we, we were able to be proactive, not reactive, and, and seeing things before you know, they're built or get hit on. And, you know, it's, it's worked for us. Yeah, well, you're coming at it there from the cost side. Now I'm thinking about the market side. So where, how do you um, anticipate, how do you manage that, the market risk issue? That's, that's another question. I see. So on the market side, really, the market is, is really, the market is my boss, right? <laughs> the, market, the, market, the market rules. Market is the chairman of my company, actually. <laughs> Completely respect that. I personally, we try to, first of all, we'll probably hedge. You know, this is why I said earlier, I don't bet futures expecting them, the market to inflate. Sure. We just won't, won't do that. And we lose a lot of projects because of that, I suppose. But we're all, I'm also looking for a hook on whatever we're doing, or, or like challenge our team. Why should the market buy here? Why does it have to be here? Much like I mentioned earlier about the hardwood versus carpet and grand versus right, green sure. But in a much more complex, you know, testing today. Mm-hmm. So we, 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 we scour, you know, the, comp, the competition that we're around. What can happen if the market drops 10%? What does that mean? And every use has obviously a different risk profile to it. You know, I look at hotels. Hotels are really not real estate, they're businesses. And it's, it's got to be in a place that's got the hook and, 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 and you know, reason for it. The home ownership on the condos is you know, really a strong test is why does somebody want to put a million dollars of theirs into this? Why, you know, and so we're pretty hard on ourselves in terms of the market. And then once you pull the trigger and you go, you know, you, you hope you have a, enough contingency and enough fallback, you know, always have an exit, you know, a plan B uh, on something because, you know, shit happens. And, you know, we were fortunate to get through, you know, the, the, the great, uh, we were fortunate to get through 9-11 and then we were fortunate to get through the great recession. And we got through the pandemic. I mean, we're doing something right, but it, it's, it's all that paying attention, you know, to the details on the construction side. And that market, that it's your friend until it's not. 
right? And, and, and look at, you know, when it's not, what do you do? Contingencies, right? Yeah, lots of stuff. Yep. So let's shift now to your personal life a little bit here. So what are your pers- what are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? My number one priority is, has always been, you know, my family. Talk about your family. So I got three kids and a great wife. Three great kids and a great wife. You know, we just, in fact, we just celebrated our 30-year anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. And so, you know, I've always done my best to be there for them and be part of everything they're doing and everything that I could do to support their dreams. Their dreams, not my dream, their dreams. And that includes my wife, too. And so it's been, it's a real blessing. They're, they're all adults now and, and we truly like hanging around each other. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So we're looking for, you know, transition in the next phase where, we, you know, these plus ones turn into, you know, the one. And we'll, we'll, we'll see where, you know, life takes it. But it's been an adventure. And so I pay a lot of attention to that. That's, that's a priority. Work-wise, you know, priorities just for me, you know, it, you know I'm, I'm starting to look at, you know, mentoring others for leadership roles, pathways for their growth. You know, at 60, I'm, I'm like, okay, it's time to give some others the chance. You have a partner in the firm? You have a partnership set up? It's not really a, a, a you know, a partner in terms of, you know, actual ownership, but I'll say that Mark Durgan, who is my CEO, he, you know, he, he is the best and he's been with me 12 plus years, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, and he is looking to retire next year. So he, he is, we're, we're looking at what, you know, his strategy is, and he will, uh, he will always be you know, part of the firm. He has big equity stakes in the firm, to be very direct with that, and which he is more than earned. And then I have Sean Seaman, who's my president, again, very trusted. He needs to work many more years. <laughs> so he's, it's part of his, you know, leadership that we're, we're looking to, you know, work with him and, and see him make his mark in the organization. And then I have a really great executive team. And I, I almost hate to name names because I'll forget somebody, but it's a, it's a, I think, an extraordinary executive team that we have. And we have profit sharing and we have ownership stakes, equities mm-hmm. into all the different properties we have here. And so it really is a team because this, 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 this provides them with, this provides them a pathway to real wealth and you know, to build up that whole sort of team aspect. Do you have a continuity it. plan? Are you building one? It's, it's really not, it's not formalized, you know, but it, there is a plan and Good. we're absolutely thinking of it. And, you know, everybody pretty much that's an executive knows the plan. Mm-hmm. And any of your children interested? Uh, I have one who's, he works here, Nate. Uh, he does, he's, he does a great job and He's, I think I met him on our tour, actually. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not surprised. He's the one we I have in charge of the Maris, which is our high-end condo. It's a $235 million condo building. Mm-hmm. So it's great. It's it's hard for me to explain just how fulfilling it is to have your son work at the company and you have these, you know, not just dinner talk conversations sure. you know, or, or business, but dinner talk conversations and other things. It's fun. So that, that said, his plan, his dream is his plan and his dream. I'm careful not to put pressure Yep. On, on that. And plus, he has worked very hard to, to make sure that this is not about nepotism. This is, this is about a fair shake. Right. And uh, so Sometimes he's it's even harder for the, the person with the same last name yeah, to yeah. work so at the company. He's tried very hard to, 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 to make sure people, people respect him for his efforts. Sure. And, uh, he is well respected here. So, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Very blessed with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, what about giving back? We, me and my wife and I, we, 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 have, we have a philanthropy plan. We, we, we give to several different causes. And we're going to actually you know, pick that up in the next couple of years as a couple of the other you know, economic goals are realized here. And we're excited about that. But there isn't one, you know, I'm, I'm a founding member of, you know, the DC Trades Academy, you know, it helps at-risk youth and all that. And I love that. I love the organization, what we're about, what we do there. And there's a lot of other series of things that, you know, I'm a part of, but I'm not going to deep dive in any of that. I, I prefer to just raise, you know, the, the proportions as, as we're capable of it. And I've got a couple of plans that I'm very actually excited about that, not ready to share just yet, but, you know, always got to be doing something, you know, of, of value, right, to, to try to make things better. So, yeah, it's, I'm really blessed to be able to get to a position where I, I can do these things, and I'm excited about it. It's sort of almost the next phase for me. That's you great. know, I look at, it's great running the company and all, but, you know, a lot of the arguments, you know, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. I've been there, done that. I pretty much know the argument. I know where it's going to end up. You know, I mean, we're going to end up in some sort of fair piece, but I've done it before again and again and again. I'm kind of ready to move on from that. Sure. Let the others, you know, handle right. those, uh, those challenges mm-hmm. and, and I'll do something a little bit fresh and something I think is worthy. So, yeah, that's a good question. That is something that I'm transitioning yeah, to. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that you have a passion that you want to satisfy and get hopefully 30, 40 more years of your life. So. I, don't know, I don't know about 40, but yeah, 30 maybe, 20 for sure. I'd like to. But yeah, yeah, sure. We'll see. So what were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events? Let me just go to surprises because obviously we're sitting in probably the biggest win, I'm guessing, in your career. But, you know, let's talk about most surprising events. What, what you know, going back to the beginning of your career, even at Donahoe and you know, other, what, what, what surprised you the most? What events occurred? Um, boy, surprises. Good or bad. Sure, sure. I, I can tell you, though, the one is, it, I, I tend to forget the bad. But the, the one surprise was early on when I started the company with Pete. We were, we were into a Washington Business Journal event. It was a awards event. Sure. And our project, Woodley Park Place, I think it was, it won the something project of the year, whatever that was. And I was just blown away. I was amazed. I was surprised. I said, wow, you know, we, we've arrived, you know, <laughs> I got to believe they were looking around like, who are these guys, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it seems small in memory maybe, but back then it was a big deal for us. So that was a, that was a really cool surprise. And, but yeah, I'm not a big surprise guy. You know, I just, I, I, I guess surprises happen to you. So it doesn't matter if you're a big surprise sure. guy or not, but I, I don't, I don't recall things that are just like, you did mention there was a three-year period where you were going through very difficult challenges on this yeah, project. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was one of the things I, I, I try to sort of tuck away. And I suppose that you could say that's a surprise because it certainly wasn't planned. But that was, those were dark days. And, you know, I look back on it and I think, okay, I got through that. And it just makes you, you know, stronger. It mm-hmm. just makes you feel more resilient. Sure. I've been through that. I can get through this. You know, yep. it's a shit storm, but I can do this. It's it's okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe those things in the end are intended to help you with you know, with other stuff. I'd like to think so, but yeah, because that, that was that was a hard time. So, what advice would you give your twenty five year old self today? Yeah. 
Well, I guess in light of everything I just said, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, quit worrying, you know, quit worrying and just you're, you're up for a hell of a ride. Enjoy it. And pretty much simple as that. I wish, you know, that's the nice thing about, you know, kind of like a movie, you can watch something and you're not personally vested in it, you know, uh, they try to bring you into it, but you're not completely. And you can watch the movie and know it, it'll probably be okay in the end. You know, your own life, you don't know that. And if you can look at it like with some positivity, you don't know how you're going to get through it, that some way it'll get through, some answer will flow through. I think that's probably a good way to live rather than worrying all the time. You can't do anything about it, about the worry. So my final question, if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Well, have you seen my smokestack out here from the Case Bridge, 14th Street? No. But we've got... What does it say? It says, uh, well, it's on Todd Thrasher's rum distillery. Okay. And we painted on it so you can see it coming across the bridge on 14th Street. It says, make rum, not war. Make rum, not war. Yeah, from the old adage. I love it. 70s, we're old enough to remember. But to answer your, 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 your question, I think, I don't know. Golden rule, maybe? It's in every religion that I, I can think of. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's, that, that pretty much summarizes a whole lot of stuff right there for me. That's great, Bonnie. Well, thank you very much for your time. This has been a very wide-ranging and interesting conversation, and I appreciate it very much. Thank well, you. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate your time and your interest. So we just talked about Monty Hoffman's life and story. And I'm now bringing in my bi-weekly colleague, Colin Madden, to talk a little bit about our discussion with Monty. Welcome, Colin. Hey, John. Thanks for having me again. I thought it was uh, another very entertaining podcast. And it was great to hear about the wharf and the... You you typically just hear the, you know, the, the high successes or the high failures in a lot of development projects, but getting into the nitty-gritty details and some of the challenges they faced throughout the entire project was very interesting to hear and learn. But before we get into the wharf, I just wanted to start back with with his upbringing. To me, it seems like he's very blue-collar and that kind of blue-collar mentality seems prevalent through his thought process throughout his entire life. You know, he was he was working in coal mines at 14 years old and truck driving at 15 and wanted to get your thoughts on on that upbringing how it probably shaped a lot of his investment decisions or philosophy. And I know you mentioned your dad had a, a similar project for you to get a job that you would never want to have again. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk through that. Yeah, Monty, his coal mine story reminded me of my <laughs> summer. It was my between my senior year in high school and freshman year in college. Uh, my dad said, I want to give you an opportunity to do something that you probably will never want to do in your life again. So my godfather had a silicone rubber plant and I had the, t- he gave me the hardest job in the plant uh, is to manage 700 degree molds, mm-hmm. lift them up and, and drop them on top of little si- silicone rubber pieces to make a bus gasket out of silicone rubber. This was mm-hmm. one of about eight different things he was manufacturing for Mostly, you know, auto and, and actually he had airline clients too. He did the little sealers around the windows for jets, as well as, you know, various products for automobile because right. we were in the Detroit area. Mm-hmm. So 
That was a very difficult job. I got scalded three times on my arm. I still have scars from it. Oh, yeah. The the factory temperature was over 100 degrees for about a week of the time I was there. So you're you're handling 700-degree molds in 100-degree weather. I lost some weight that summer. You got straight A's after working in the coal mine. Did you have the same? I had the strong same, uh, incentive uh, not yeah. to go back. I can tell you that. And my okay. co-workers were all ex-cons, too. Really? So that was <laughs> an interesting environment, yes. So he does, Monty did seem very resilient and kind of regimented and didn't take, I guess the wharf was a, a very high risk uh, project, but as he describes his other investments and other projects, he does seem very regimented and he's, he said he doesn't bet futures. Do you think that type of investment philosophy is, is because he doesn't want to go back into the blue collar world or, or what, what do you think? Where do you think that comes from? I think he learned, you know, st- studying engineering and, and uh, doing jobs that he had early on in his life. He said it was interesting when he was a kid, he, his dad would bring him on job sites and he'd listen to the to the jocular yeah, back and forth and jokes and all that. And, but he watched carefully as to how they worked and what they did. And they were very, pretty methodical. On mm-hmm. their jobs, and mm-hmm. as a bricklayer, you need to be methodical, right? So I think he had this kind of, you know, this real do it right the first time mentality, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to have to go back and make changes. You know, right. I think it's that that you know measure it twice and do it once type of mentality that he mm-hmm. that uh, his dad probably taught him. Yeah, and I think, and I think uh, go ahead, sir. So I, I think that that translates to. His life thought thought process, frankly. Right. And he, he had a quote during the podcast of in regards to risk, which I want to get into deeper, but he said it's constant and relentless oversight of detail was his how he kind of works day to day. And to bring back the Peter Coffin speech, he was saying, you know, dogged incremental constant progress exactly. over a very long time frame. And I thought those two, you know, philosophies tied together pretty, pretty good. So I think a lot of your your listeners are people in their 20s and 30s. And Monty brings up that he was lucky to get equity at an early age. And I believe it was around 30 to 35 is when he first did his, his own equity deal. And I was just on a fishing trip and we were talking about this, like when and how to get equity. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how important it is to get equity early in, in one's career and how to know if, when you're ready and when you think you're ready, how you should go about doing your first project. Well, you know, he had the entrepreneurial itch. His father was an entrepreneur, so that helped. And the timing on the market was good. Early 90s, were we were coming out of the woods, basically, at that time. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, you could say the same about today. We're coming out of the woods. Maybe it's a different kind of woods, but mm-hmm. but it's still woods. And, you know, there, there, there are probably some very unusual opportunities today that with a good business plan, I think you can raise capital around. There's a lot of money out there. <laughs> so there's more money than there are good deals. Right. So, and quality people as, as the job market's showing right now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are just so many jobs looking for quality people. Yeah. So it's not the same time, but it's similar. Right. And as, as you have that dogged pr- pursuit like he has, and that's seen by by investors. They understand that people will invest in 
people like that. And so, and he started small, you know, I think he bought a townhouse and renovated, but if you look at his website and some of his deals, I mean, they were all in really good locations now there, but at the time they were edgy. He was Mm -hmm. in Logan circle before Mm -hmm. very few people were there. He was crossing over 16th street, which at that time was dicey. I asked him about his, who his buyers were because everything he did was, was uh, for sale. And he said, you know, it was eclectic mix. And he said the gay population was pretty early on in that process. Mm-hmm. And they had, they were, yeah. they were cut, they're cutting edge. They were buying things that were dilapidated. And so the worse the property looked, the better the opportunity was. And that's the way he looked, he looked at it. Mm-hmm. As long as the bones were good, he would try yeah, to figure he it out. It. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it, it seems like not only was the timing markets that were shifting, he timed those very well, but he's also kind of pushing the the offerings that you could you could you get at the time when he did the granite countertops and instead of the plenum. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And that type of you know creative thought process is what I I kind of like about my job. There's a lot of entrepreneurial thoughts, and it's like, well, what if we did this and tweak this a little bit better? And you see that a lot. And yeah, I thought that was interesting. There's um, always opportunities to be creative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I feel, I feel like people don't really think real estate as like a very creative business, but I, I would disagree very, very strongly. I think I don't know who, who creative would. ideas. Yeah, some of those creative I, ideas oh, I see are, are on a day to day basis. And sit down and like, talk to an architect. Sit yeah. down and talk to an architect that's very creative. Mm-hmm. It's, his ideas are usually not practical. Some of them. Yeah. There are some architects that are very practical and they get mm-hmm. it. Others are very esoteric, mm-hmm. but you know, but not just architects. I mean, even small interior aspects of a property or just the way things are laid out on a site yeah. or inside a building takes creativity and thought mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. You know, even lighting and I mean, there are just so many ways to create in our industry and even financing. Right. Even putting yeah. a deal together, you can be creative too. So yeah. it's almost infinite the opportunities to be creative mm-hmm. in real estate, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess this is a good transition into the war because I thought it was fascinating and loved hearing about the challenges he faced, both from the capital side to the DC side to structural and engineering side. It sounded like he had to get creative at every step of the way. And just wanted to get your thoughts on his, his work project. You're talking about creativity. I think that the most difficult creative challenge of all mm-hmm. is working with people with a large different types of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> how to, how to put a team together. Yeah. To build a project of that magnitude. Imagine yeah. the complexity of that. It's just. Amazing. Yeah. Especially if, if some of the people weren't on your team. Yeah. So, so it's. It's, it's dealing with a lot of people and with conflicting interests. Yeah. It must have been an extremely challenging and well, all the different product. Yeah. All the different product types you had there mm-hmm. and the mentality of each of the operators for each of the enterprises that you have. Mm-hmm. You also have a waterfront. You have a marina. You have all those issues. Mm-hmm. And then as he was assembling the site, he was battling certain people. So his story about JBG. With Ben Jacobs, at one point, they were all each going to do their own deal. And he finally agreed. He, he's patient enough 
to work out a deal with Ben Jacobs. And if I'm him thinking about that, that had to have been one of the biggest accomplishments of his career. Yeah. Because, I mean, Monty's background, you know, you, you, you say putting Monty Hoffman and Ben Jacobs together and, you know, it's wow. <laughs> he was able yeah. to put that together and make that deal. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's a big accomplishment for him. And yeah. uh, so getting that done was a big part of it. And then working with uh, apparently inter intergovernmental battles uh, within mm-hmm. the D.C. government. And then, of course, the financing debacle with Hoover Brothers going bankrupt in 2009. So for three years, he said he was in a dark place trying to yeah, assemble everything and pay for everything. Yeah. Fortunately, his other businesses were doing well, and he was selling well in the condominium space, even in the in the tough times. So he mm-hmm. was able to withstand uh, some pressure. He fortunately had enough success earlier in his career mm-hmm. to make that happen. It wasn't for the faint of heart. I'm sure it was. No, every no, it, every check he wrote was was scary. I'll, I'll bring in where you work. You you're fortunate to have you know funds behind you. Then, you know, as long as the business plan is right, you can do major mixed use developments like that. He didn't have mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he didn't have the fundamental basis of having all the money there just to draw on when he needed it. Right. So being able to secure Madison Marquette and then, and then get the Canadian pension fund to invest was huge. Yeah. And very, it seemed very entrepreneurial how we had to, you know, go back to the pension funds, you know, a number of times and de-risk certain aspects of the asset or the project. Pretty fascinating, I thought. And do you think without that entrepreneurial mindset, he could have pulled it off? Or do you, do you really think it was, you had to be extremely creative to, to get the entire project done? Boy, that's a tough question. I mean, <laughs> it's, it takes inner strength to get through what he got through mm-hmm. to accomplish. I mean, once he had the money, then it was just getting the project built right, and getting it done well. But there were enough challenges there mm-hmm. that, you know, I asked him about water because yeah. being on a waterfront, you know, the story of Washington Harbor was a good, he said a good lesson for them because mm-hmm. that was a nightmare. That project was open. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, you know, he had some really good engineers, fortunately, working on that. Yeah. And then yeah, his then story we... about the metro tunnel, that was for phase two, was another interesting one. Yeah. It's a tough, uh, unforeseen condition to, to stumble upon. Yeah. You know, you have to be a sophisticated engineer to figure that one out. No right. question. Right. So what did they do? They, they put a thick silicon pad around the steel structure? Well, that was for vibration. Right. The first one they had is to put weight down so that the, mm-hmm. the, the tunnel didn't float up and, mm-hmm. and into the property because there's a tendency when, you know, something's like that, uh, it kind of yeah, rises. The buoyancy of the buoyancy yeah. of it. Yeah. So it was like we had to put these big steel bars and oh, noise. How are we going to mm-hmm. manage that vibration? You said feeling it one day and he said, Wait a minute. This is going to be good for the property. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I wanted to, to get into risk a little bit. He did, to me, appear to be fairly risk adverse, especially compared to some of your other podcast guests. 
he says he, he doesn't bet futures and he loses a lot of deals because of, you know, his, his, his risk profile, I would say. Do you think he had to totally step out of his frame of, of mind to do the wharf? It, do, it kind of seems like it was a different play than what he would typically do. And did that surprise you or do you think it was just like a, a chance of a lifetime and he, he had to do it? You know, he he said when he first heard about the uh, RFEI, as he Mm -hmm. called it, he said, nah, I'm not going to do this. This Mm -hmm. is just, this is way out of my my league. Mm -hmm. But people kept saying, you know, Monty, you you ought to get in this game. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what spark hit him, but he decided, you know, hey, let's take a shot at this. He said, I guess, I guess he basically said there was a couple things that happened right around that time that he had deals that kind of closed out and he had, you know, he thought he was going to get something and didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, I have time. So why not? Let's just take a shot and take a little different approach than the JBGs of the world would for the project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do a, you know, a a lifestyle center here. Right. As he said, we're going to do something pretty unique. Yeah. So it is. Yeah, I mean, Struver Brothers was a, you know, like Madison Marquette, they did mixed, big, huge, mixed-use urban, mm-hmm. you know, projects. And apparently it had waterfront backgrounds, you know, mm-hmm. both of them did. I mean, Madison Marquette has a big project up in New Jersey that's pretty analogous to that. It's not mm-hmm. a, not the scale, but it's yeah. large. So, you know, uh, they get it. They understand this. And, you know, he was fortunate to get them as partners. So. You know, it's it's an amazing project. If you walk that project, it's it's impressive. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I think great for DC. It's great to have that type of concert venue as well. And um, excited to see what what happens with the marina. I think you said there's there's the ability to have a hundred mega yachts. Is that am I yeah. making that number up? Well, now with phase two, it just opens up the harbor that much more. I mean, it's a mile long, so. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if DC becomes a, a yacht city. <laughs> um, but uh, well, yeah, we'll see. It could. <laughs> it, it certainly could. There's certainly the welfare for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not South Beach, but right you know. or Monaco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't see that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I asked him about. So, what happens when people want to? come in i mean do they have to get a slip in advance or how's that work you know he said yeah you need to call in advance and figure it out he said they're set up for it is phase two they're going to do a, par- a new park mm-hmm. uh, i asked him if they're going to have another concert venue he said no we're not going to compete with the anthem but we'll have some out- really good outdoor amenities yeah. in phase two yeah. so anxious to see what that's going to look like mm-hmm. yeah it'll be exciting so it's <clears throat> it's cool Mm-hmm. And he's expanded down to North Carolina now. He's got a project, big mixed-use project down there. One of my former mentees is is uh, managing that, that managing that development. Yep. What what's uh what are the details of that one? It's a train station conversion, and they're going vertical with it mm-hmm. in Raleigh. It's uh it's an urban mixed-use project. I don't know the absolute details. Mm-hmm. It's on their webs on the uh, Hoffman website. Uh, there's a whole page on the project. So, is that a uh, a redevelopment or a ground up? It's ground up. Well, ground up. there might be parts of an adaptive, adaptive um, reuse. 
And then the rest of it is a, is a, uh, is a vertical ground up project. Yeah. Mostly residential Mm -hmm. as most of his deals are. It's interesting. One aspect that I did, we didn't talk about is that his mentality of for sale as opposed to owning for rent. I said, you know, that (laughs) that's a volatile market, that condominium market. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you'd, you'd want to have a little mix. He said, well, yeah, we got to that point, you know, after the crisis that we had to have some more balance. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do more longer term investments to have build an estate. But, you know, his mentality, it seems to me was cash, accumulate mm-hmm. as much cash as possible, mm-hmm. have cash on, on hand and pay taxes if he need to on ordinary income, but build, you know, cash reserves to, to, yeah. That was kind of the mentality. And I think that may come from his blue collar thought process because that is what I've been familiar with growing up with people that I mm-hmm. know in blue. They want to have a wads of cash yeah. <laughs> just to be sure if there's something that goes wrong. Yeah. And maybe that even goes back to the rest of the depression. Yeah. They, uh, uh, they want to, they want to make sure they have the income and the money available to do what they need to do. You know, betting long on a income producing asset. You know, you you don't get as much cash flow up front. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to wait for it. Mm-hmm. You're building capital wealth, so that's what that's the mode he's in now. Obviously, the war they're not going to sell anytime mm-hmm. soon, and and a lot of his other uh, multifamily deals now are longer term. Yeah. So it took him a while to figure that out. But you get in a different point in your life, and you do you think differently about things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. So, anything else? I think that's all I had from my end. Is there anything you wanted to to reiterate from the podcast? No, I I just think that a lot of lessons learned there. I think it was, uh, you know, like many of my guests, he came from humble background. And there Mm -hmm. are others that very much like that, Mm -hmm. that have been very successful. They saw Washington, D.C. It was interesting. I said, why Washington? He said, well, it's three hours from, he grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Came here. I said, "What about Pittsburgh or Philadelphia?" He said, eh, I wanted to go to Washington. I could see yeah. it was a you know, a place of. So a lot of people come here because they see the opportunities, and particularly mm-hmm. in the real estate sector, because you know, other than government, real estate is the biggest business in town. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's uh, it's it's a great attraction, and a lot of people have done extremely well here. It's a complicated place to build. And zoning and all kinds of issues get in your way sometimes. And mm-hmm. Government influence is very strong, but things get get done. And boy, some of them are very, very cool. And right. what, he's, what he's developed, it's been some very cool projects. Not just in, not just the wharf, but several other major projects he's done in the city that I talked about in the podcast. So, so listeners, thank you for joining us today. And I thought, hope you. Uh, enjoyed this and uh, we'll uh, be back in a couple of weeks with uh, my next episode. Stay well. Thank you.